Welcome back to the AP World History Podcast. Uh, we're going to be looking at our second part of decolonization and looking at the effects of decolonization in this one. And uh, we're going to be mainly focusing on uh, three areas. The first area is going to be politics and looking at what happens with the new governments that get established. Then we're going to look at uh, economics and look at the new economic systems that come about. And then we're going to look at uh, the cultural uh, changes that happen and effects of decolonization. And so... Uh, we're going to break this down into three parts. Hopefully we'll keep it under or around 30 minutes here because there's a lot of stuff to go through, but we should be able to do that. Um, now, uh, starting off, we got to do a little review from the last one. Uh, remember in the 50s, 60s, uh, all these colonies that were of the Europeans start to really push for independence and the Europeans can't stop that and they grant them independence. Uh, and they established the borders based on where the colonies were. And you have now uh, hundreds of new nations that have now just gained their independence. And um, these new nations get labeled for the most part as third world nations or what we call today as developing nations. Um, and this means that they uh, don't have allegiance to the West or to the um, Soviets. And, and the reason why I bring that up is because there's this whole labeling system uh, with what, well, what, who's the country aligned with? Because the whole historical context that we're seeing this happen in is the Cold War. So... This is all part of the Cold War, and the Russians, uh, or the Soviets, I should say, and the Americans need to label who's their allies and who's not, and who's ever not with them could be an enemy or it could be someone that could be brought in and become a friend. So there's first, second, and third world. Third world is mainly what we're looking at here with the nations that are just granted independence. And uh, we now call them developing because there's this rival between Russia and the United States for influence. Uh, but it does label more where they're at with their economics and that for the most part, they're not developed. They're not like the Western nations that have a reliance on factories and, and all those things. Um, they're more based on agriculture. And um, so that's the third world. Second world is uh, the Soviet influencers. Uh, so it's the Soviet and who they influence. And so that's like the Soviet Union, China, North Korea, Vietnam, uh, those regions. And then uh, first world is the West. So the United States, Britain, France, uh, the rest of Western Europe, uh, Canada, Australia, those, those Western nations. Um, Latin America and... Um, well, Latin America is kind of left out of this. They'd be more the, the, the part of the third world um, because they're not necessarily um, with the same ideas. They don't go in with the same ideas as the other Western nations uh, like the U.S. and Britain and France and those. So they're a little bit different in that fact that they're more with the the, the, the newly independent nations. Um with the exception of probably Cuba, which was uh, a second uh, world country because they allied with the Soviets. And so th these alliances or, or these labels have, again, continued to today with developed being that first world nations. Transition countries are mostly those second world nations with some exceptions to that. But it's a lot of the East Bloc uh, of the European states, uh, Russia uh, and, and some of those nations uh, that were communists before. And then you have um, third, or those third world countries are the developing ones. Those are all the ones that we're seeing starting to actually really truly industrialize and have an industrialized uh, economy. Now, one thing you notice if we look at a map with this before we move on to, from this is we're going to see that almost all those developed nations, the first world nations, are all in the northern hemisphere. And that includes really a lot of the transition nations too. 
And so what this gets known as is for those that are developing in third world nations, uh, that is the global south. And that's why um, when if you paid attention to the Olympics being in Rio uh, in 2016, or if you paid attention to uh, the um, oh uh, Pope oh Francis uh, when he got elected Pope and he came from Argentina, I believe I should I should know that um, off the top of my head. But uh, when he came from that, it was the first time we had a Pope from the. Yep, he's from Argentina. Uh, but it was the first time we had a Pope from the, the southern, uh, the global south, and also the first time we had Olympics in the global south that wasn't a um, developed Western nation like uh, Australia. So um, that's, that's kind of the background there that I want to go into before we get started on this. And let's talk about the politics now uh, on things. Um, with the political scene here, we've got a lot of newly... Uh, independent nations and they are looking forward to being democratic and they really for the most part try their best to be democratic but there's a problem and that problem is there's the the thing that was uniting the people of we're not the Europeans um, and we are Ugandans or Congolese or Algerians or whatever country you want to look at for that that thing that united them, that nationalism that was there, disappears, uh, kind of. It, it still stays around. They'll still say, okay, we're, we're part of this nation or whatever. But uh, that takes a backseat to tribal distinctions uh, because they go back to their old allegiances, which is what, what they're um, used to and what they had been with for most of history and what the European borders did not take into account. So you've got this great diversity in these new nations and a democracy is going to be rough because it requires people um, coming together and voting and then accepting the the outcomes and trusting in the political process uh, but and and trying to do it for the benefit of everyone but the ethnic leaders want to see things just come to their ethnic tribe and their families and, and all that stuff. So you get a lot of corruption going on with that. You get, uh, I don't want to label it as pettiness between the different tribes, but we can kind of go with that and think of it that way of, well, you get th these intertribal or ethnic rivalries. And so that leads to civil wars. It'll lead to ethnic cleansings like we'll see in Rwanda. Um, Nigeria, we see issues with that. In Sudan, we see issues with that. Um, so we see... Uh, ethnic tensions really rising, and this this really weakens a democracy. You can't have a democracy that doesn't represent anyone, so or everyone, I mean. And so eventually, what we see happen is uh, dictators will take over. They'll take advantage of uh, the weak democracy and the the people fighting. And so military leaders will take over the government and put themselves in place. Uh, you'll see them take advantage of the lack of response of the government to uh, uh, environmental issues like famines. Uh, and again, put themselves in in charge. So we're going to see a lot of strong men come into uh, these African nations at the time because the democracies are <clears throat> sorry, the democracies are weak. And there's really only one nation that I can point to and that the book really points to as that this doesn't happen to. And that is India. Now, why is that the case? Why is India the case where we don't really see um, it happen? 
Uh, it's not because it's not in Africa, uh, because if we talk about diversity, India's got just as much diversity as we look at in some of those nations in Africa. And size-wise, it's bigger than, I believe, all those nations in Africa that get established. So what is it that allowed India to not go into having dictators and being fairly democratic throughout its history to um, neighbors like Pakistan and Bangladesh? Although I don't know enough about Bangladesh to say this, so we'll just talk about Pakistan. Pakistan jumping to having dictators and stuff like that. Um, so the question is, well, what, again, I said it again, so I apologize for repeating that so much, but what is it? And the thing is, there is a slow transition process to gain, uh, independence for the Indians. Uh, the Indians, uh, are kind of getting independence and getting more rights in the colony in the 1920s, uh, with their protests. When, when Gandhi's protests are finally being, uh, really successful after World War One, um, they start getting right to self-rule and it's a slow transition process over to it to where finally they get independence in 1947. And so they have a democratic system where they have people that are experienced in, uh, a lot of people that are experienced in Western ideas and thoughts uh, that look and value democracy. And so they they have this tradition of it and they, they adopt it and keep it going. Does that mean this democracy was perfect or anything like that? No, there are still issues. Um, uh, and there's still issues in India today over that stuff. It's the largest democracy and it's really unwieldy to do that. It, it, it's got problems solving issues uh, because of uh, how big it is and stuff like that. But they're able to harness this because of the slow transition process that the British really helped them with. If we look at every single other independence movement, an independent nation that happens after that, it is like that almost for these transitions. It's pretty much overnight or over a few nights or over a year, the European nation drops out and says, hey, good luck. Uh, we're going to drop you in the deep end of the pool and hopefully you swim. And well, as we just saw with the dictators and everything else like that, it doesn't turn out well. Um, so it, it's interesting to think of a kind of alternative history wise. What would have happened if we actually, uh, as the Europeans or as the West, helped these countries in transition? Uh, that would be one thing that could have helped them out uh, a lot. And uh, maybe we wouldn't have the issues that we have uh, today. Maybe some of those things would have been solved um, by helping out with those transition processes. But it's expensive to do that. Um, and you're not getting any benefits out of it, whereas the British were always hoping in India that they were still going to get some good money or, or might be able to convince the, the Indians to stay with them. So... Um, that's that's the big thing we see happening. So we get these dictators taking over, and then uh, what's going to happen is uh, eventually the people are going to get kind of sick of these dictators, and um, they're going to start pushing pushing back. Uh, we see this in Latin America uh, during this time because they're having issues with dictators as well. Uh, after the Latin American revolutions, you get a lot of these uh, strong men that come into power. The Cadillos, I believe, is the term I want to say there. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, Cadillo. And uh, they take over, and um, we see that uh, they will they will run the countries as strong military men. Um, and then we see a transition start to happen in those, where the people really push back and fight back and get their democracy back, which is initially what they wanted after the Latin American revolutions that Simon Bolivar helped and it was his uh, was his goal the whole time to see. Well, this also happens in Africa, and we're starting to see today where we're getting more democratic systems in place, 
in Africa. But that's not to say that there aren't issues. There's still a lot of corruption that's going on in these nations with the voting. Um, you can look at South Africa, for instance, although we talked about them, um, the, the whites in control with apartheid for the majority of the time here. Uh, the African National Congress, when it finally took over uh, after Mandela, uh, has become a fairly corrupt political party in how, how things are working. Um, and so you can see them uh, taking out their, their current leader uh, or their transition between their current leader to their new leader, now formally resigned leader, to this new one. Um, you see that kind of stuff going on. And uh, you can see it in Tanzania and Nigeria where there's corruption that leads to tension, especially in Nigeria where we got Boko Haram. The reason why they're rebelling in the north is uh, partially because they don't want to see the Western ideas since that's what their name is. But um, it's also because the Nigerian government in the south, uh, which is getting all the money, isn't redistributing it to the Muslim north because they wanted to go to the Christian groups and the Western thinking groups in, in the south. And so you got some issues there again. Going back to that diversity thing we talked about earlier, so um, it's not it's nothing is really perfect, right? Or well, nothing is really ever perfect in the world. You can look at the Western world, and there's still issues with democracies, but uh, things aren't um, things are slowly starting to get better. Let's say it that way. Uh, as we get into the '90s and 2000s, uh, especially with also the Cold War ending. The Soviet Union and the United States aren't trying to exploit those situations to try to maintain an alliance and keep them from becoming communist or capitalistic. So we don't have the U.S. or anyone intervening in a country like the Congo and taking out the democratically elected government to then put in a to put a dictator in charge because they were worried about the democratically elected government aligning themselves with the communists because of their ideas of sharing the wealth and stuff like that. Um, and not necessarily generally wealth in a communist way, but a much scarier way than what capitalism kind of says. So um, we're starting to see finally, uh, again, shifting towards more democratic systems here uh, as we get to the present. Um, let's see. Another example of a coup uh, that the book goes into Um so I talked about the Congo, that'll become Zaire after that. Uh, but in Latin America, this also happens in Chile. Uh, social reformers uh, who are democratically elected um, will, will try to take over. Uh, but that's going to uh, hurt American businesses that are in Chile because they want to nationalize industries and redistribute wealth. And so the U.S. helps throw a coup uh, to keep the um, elites in power who are allied to the U.S. and benefiting a lot from, from it. So you get a dictator known in there as Pinochet, um, who finally gets taken out um, until the... Uh, ooh, when did Pinochet come out? I think in the 90s. Um, uh, and there's actually some really cool campaign videos if you ever get into a, a comparative politics class. Uh, yeah, 1990 he gets kicked out. Um, but if you ever get a chance to look at some, uh, if you get into a comparative politics class, it's actually really interesting to see um, how a, a, a peaceful, non-pro, uh, non-violent movement uh, helped push uh, push out his regime. Um, but that's a side note. So. Um, that's that's kind of the third world in a nutshell, or the developing nations that we see in a, in a nutshell going on here with their with their 
government systems, we see them in flux. They're going back and forth between democracies or they're, they're going from a democracy to dictatorships and then lots of infighting in those dictatorships with, with new generals, new new military coups and stuff like that taking over. Um, and then uh, finally we're getting to more stabilizing those countries and seeing more democratic processes, but they're still not perfect yet. There's still a lot of corruption going on in those and a lot of uh, tribal ethnic allegiances. Um, one other thing to add here, or two more things to add. Um, one, Europe had some issues with dictators as well. These guys were stemming from even before the um, before the World Wars. Uh, you have the Spanish Civil War, and uh, they overthrow their their dictators by the sixties and uh, or between the sixties and eighties. And and by the eighties, you don't really have any dictators left in Europe. Although, um, if we go into modern politics, talking about today in twenty eighteen, there are some. Uh, countries that make you nervous about where they're going and how they're looking to be more and more authoritarian or having a dictator. Uh, Hungary would be an example of one of those. Um, so you you have some examples of that, that for the most part, um, dictators are out. If we talk about Latin America, by about 2000, all the dictators are pretty much kicked out. Uh, and in Asia and Africa, we see a lot of that happening as well. Although um, you have military regimes like in Cambodia, and they're the ones doing the genocide in uh, against the Rohingya, um, or not Cambodia, sorry, in, in Burma or Myanmar, today Myanmar, um, but you had Cambodia doing their thing uh, with the genocide as well. Um, but you have those going on. And uh, the last thing to really talk about with uh, spreading of democracy is we see this really resurgence in, in the Middle East, uh, which we haven't talked about too much, in 2011 with something known as the Arab Spring, uh, which are these democratic movements to bring democracy to where these authoritarian regimes were in place. Um, and also it's to bring a more westernized view of um, the government. So more secular, less uh, Islamic-based um, laws and Sharia and stuff like that. So... Um, that, that leads to a lot of new um, democracies being established. Uh, Egypt's tried to do it, but they're kind of still in a dictator. Um, Libya, again, tried it, but isn't really, uh, is in kind of chaos right now. Uh, Tunisia is an example of one that was successful. Um, where else was there one? The, the only other one I can think of now off the top of my head is Syria. And Syria, as you probably know already, is in a state of civil war, has been a state of civil war since then. Uh, so we're on about uh, seven years or so, uh, going on to seven years here of that civil war going on. Um, so it hasn't been perfect uh, with the Arab Spring either in getting things right, but uh, there are some nations that are starting to uh, step away from that those dictatorships in those regions and those monarchies. Now let's take a look at those economies. So the developed nations need to figure out a way to uh, make their countries successful and, and provide for the people because... Uh, how the economy is doing is really a barometer for how people judge the government's doing and whether or not that's right is a whole nother question that we're not going to go into but you can see that in how uh, people look at uh, whether the president's doing a good job based on what the economy is doing even though sometimes it's completely out of their control so uh, what happens is a lot of these economies are going to struggle and there are three major problems that they're going to uh, face um that we're going to dive into here, uh, but that's what leads to all those political issues we just talked about. Uh, if you don't have those issues, or if you have, if you if you fix this issue of the poor economy or a struggling economy, uh, you then um, don't have as much political issues and strife. 
Uh, the other thing I might compare it to is if you think about sports, um, when a season's going well and you're winning a lot, you can deal with a lot of other issues that are going on the team. You can deal with bad teammates and stuff like that, and everyone's kind of happy because you're winning. It's a great pan panacea or cure-all for everything. Whereas when you're having a losing season, everything is um, highlighted more. It's, it's emphasized more. The, the negatives, you see a lot more of those negatives than you do those positives because it's not going well. And so people see the negatives of what's going on in the government. They see the corruption. They see the issues with different ethnic groups, uh, which is going to lead to, again, those genocides we brought up of Rwanda, Darfur. Um, those genocides are going to happen because of tough economic issues there. So it would be interesting to see if these countries were successful because they didn't have everything taken from them by the Europeans on their way out or before they left, uh, if they didn't have all their resources raped from them, if they had had uh, public uh, works put in place to um, to have roads that connected the whole country, to connect the economies uh, throughout the, the country, if they had bridges to span across the large rivers, if they had airports, if they had modern shipping uh, docks and stuff like that to be able to handle all that stuff and integrate into the world trade, you, you might not have the issues that we we see happening here. But uh, we can't speculate on that because, well, it's, it's not the case. we we got to look at what history tells us and then learn from that and, and make some judgments on what would be some better ways to do stuff, which would then be thinking about those things that I just brought up there. So first problem. Is the governments think they're going to be able to lead a charge uh, for change and uh, drastically change what had been going on in these nations under their colonization? Uh, they look at uh, nations like the Soviet Union uh, when they get uh, rid of the czar and uh, they say, hey, look, they did it and they're making themselves better. We can do this. We can have the government take charge and, and industrialize our economy and make everything all great. And... Um, well, it's a great idea, but it doesn't work, unfortunately, for the most part. And uh, that's because, one, the nations don't have the money to do this. Again, the Europeans have just taken a lot of their resources, so they don't have the capital to be able to really push uh, and drive this, which is what the Soviets had. Um, then uh, you have markets where are you going to sell stuff to or what are you going to do for that they, there aren't a lot of markets and if everyone's trying to do this stuff and and not work and integrate with each other that's going to cause problems on the international scene and uh, it's very similar to what we saw with the europeans when they finally got into the silver trade and stuff like that the europeans didn't have anything china wanted and now we're into a similar situation here of well, the Europeans, who are the ones that would be buying stuff, are like, well, we can make this stuff in our own country for better and cheaper than you guys do in your country. So uh, we just want your raw material still, just like when you were a colony. And so they don't they don't have the income coming in to actually industrialize and fund that stuff. And so um, it, it fails. And what you see happening is even in, in the Soviet Union, where they try to do this, um, it doesn't fully work. They don't become fully developed. That's why Russia is considered a transitioning country in what we call, uh, talk about that hierarchy today, and not a developed nation, <coughs> because they, they fail at this. And that's because, um, the, or, well, they just didn't have the resources. But uh, that leads to a lot of corruption. Um, and uh, it also sometimes happened from Western pressure of that the uh, Western nation said, you know what, uh, this kind of goes along with the corruption, but hey, let's have Shell Gasoline come in here to uh, Nigeria and we'll pump all the oil out for you. It'll be great. Uh, we'll refine it and do all that stuff. We'll provide you with some jobs and it'll be good. And that sounds all nice, but uh, we're going to talk next week more about um, 
uh, capitalism and, and the global economy and stuff like that of today. Uh, and we're going to get to is some international uh, corporations. But that money in the end goes some to that government uh, and the wages go some to those workers. But they treat the workers pretty bad because they don't have the same regulations in the, as in the developed nations. And uh, a lot of that money goes back to where those companies are from. So Shell would come back to uh, the United States, uh, British Petroleum would go back to Britain. Uh, so they don't get the full benefit of that as if they had their own nation uh, doing it or their own companies doing it. But they also don't have the resources to start their own companies. And uh, so what eventually happens here is is they also didn't have the capital to do it privately. And so you get a mix here where the private people will partner with the government to try to do things and that leads to what we call state capitalism uh, and so it's a blend of a market economy so a capitalist idea with also a government controlled economy the um, good examples of this are china this is how china combats the failures of the great leap forward and and mao's policies that were a huge detriment to the nation um, so we see uh, that happen in china we see it happen in brazil saudi arabia is kind of like that too as well today uh, and, and other nations have kind of adopted this of where the government kind of dictates or really helps guide the economy, but um, they also partner and try to have private individuals uh, start to help industrialize or help the process of, process of industrialization. Uh, second thing, and I've already talked about this a little bit in the last one, is how do you integrate into this world economy? Because we've got this global trade that's going on and and everything, and you want what the United States has, all the new technology coming out of there, but it's really expensive and you don't really have the money for it, and so you want to trade with the U.S., but again, what's there to trade with the U.S.? The U.S. doesn't doesn't need a lot of that stuff other than the resources, so you don't get paid a lot for natural resources, you get paid a lot for the finished product. The 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 steel and whatnot, or the iron that goes into making the John Deere tractor that you really want to help industrialize your farming is a lot more is a lot cheaper than what the actual uh, implement or the, the the machine is once you get it. Um, so uh, this leads to a lot of problems of how do they make money, and uh, as well. Um, you're going to see global depressions happen. So there's the the Great Depression. That's going to weaken uh, what's going on. You're going to see uh, local depressions in certain regions because of massive inflation because you don't have the funds to cover your debts and stuff like that. So you just print off more money. And so we see things like hyperinflation where uh, countries have a million-dollar bill. Uh, we saw this happen to Germany after World War I. Uh, so uh, you have that going on. And that's going to then lead to... Um, when you have situations like that, that's going to lead to social inequalities. And um, it's just not going to work out well. Now, there are some exceptions to this where these newly independent nations find uh, connections. Uh, but it's really the, the developed nations reached out and really tried to help develop them. So things like South Korea. Um, after the Korean War, the United States really tries to help rebuild it and makes it into a powerhouse of an economy. Taiwan uh, becomes a U.S. ally and a Japanese ally in, um, in, in business. Uh, Hong Kong, the special district in China that was controlled by Britain up until the uh, 90s, uh, will become highly industrialized. So the developed nations will choose groups that have certain things that they want or are in perfect locations for global trade and really work with them. 
um, and develop that. So when they can get that, it's great. But again, that's not most nations. These are a few exceptions, and they're primarily in East Asia, um, not Africa, unfortunately. So in Africa, we don't see that happening. Uh, but we do see it maybe a little bit more now in Southeast Asia, especially with the push to, and, and South Asia with the push to manufacturing textiles and stuff in those regions. So uh, we see a shift uh, going on there and integrating them more into it, but they're doing low labor, low cost things that aren't going to get them uh, super wealthy. And again, these are international companies that are in there, not their own country or companies uh, that are then going and selling out to the rest of the world. Then uh, there's one last thing here. And that's an urban bias uh, in that the infrastructure isn't there. So again, I've kind of talked about this a little bit, but um, the countries are going to go, well, we need to industrialize. So we're going to focus on cities and we're going to make the factories in the cities. and We're going to do all that stuff. Well, that's great. Uh, and that's how you get an industrial nation. But you need to have the roads that then can go and sell that stuff or bring people to those cities to be able to buy it or to be able to move there or to be able to go and sell it out to the rest of the country or to take it to your ports or wherever and they don't have it and again the resources for the government aren't there they're strapped for cash to begin with and so they got to take out huge loans from uh, the world bank and the international monetary fund that they eventually have to pay out at high interest rates because they're risky and so these nations are just in holes of, of debt uh, with their governments and uh, their economies remain weak because of that and so, um, what else do I want to say on that? Uh, the final thing, no, that's pretty much it for that urban bias. Uh, I guess one, one other thing to say with that is, is with these shifts, uh, women do get to play more of a part in the economy. Uh, so we see them rising up a little bit, but I wouldn't say it's anywhere uh, near equal. Uh, we see them getting some more opportunities than just staying at home, but uh, there's still that idea of tradition and, and um uh, traditional roles that they're supposed to play and do stuff like that. Now, um, there are still, or there are some successes to this. Uh, like I brought up, um, with the ones being integrated into the world economy, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, South Korea, China is now being integrated, but it's because the developed nations have decided to work with them and, and, and integrate them to it because of the uh, benefit that they bring. Um, other nations that aren't really done or with that done to again is Africa where um, where it's just not working um, because there, there isn't much that the global um, the global economy is, is doing there to help them out or to integrate them whereas East Asia is being integrated and uh, the other successful thing is if you have a lot and I mean a lot of a natural resource that can get you wealthy and, and help really boost your economy if you can exploit it correctly so uh, things like the OPEC nations, the oil producing, um, oh shoot, what does OPEC stand for? Oil producing economic council or something like that. Um, uh, OPEC is the, sorry, I got to look it up real quick. Um, the petroleum, no, that's not it. Ah, there it is. Uh, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. Sorry, that took me so long. But uh, so those nations, uh, primarily they're in the Middle East, but they're not all there. Uh, Venezuela is a part of it. Saudi Arabia is there. I Iran, I believe, is a part of it still. Um, but these nations that produce all the oil or a huge chunk of the oil, 
uh, they unite and they have huge economic boost because oil is the key resource in this, in the second industrial revolution. Our cars, planes, uh, all our transportation relies on this. Uh, our, our products, uh, all the plastic we have and stuff relies on this. So it's a huge resource and you can make a huge boom on it. But there's also a major issue with when you do that. And that's when oil prices drop, which is what OPEC tries to prevent from happening as they drop. Uh, you have a major drop in what your country brings in, and that leads to lots of problems and will lead to depressions in those regions when that happens. Okay, so that's the economy. Now, last part here, culture. Um, this one's going to be the quickest one. Uh, we should be able to get through it pretty pretty quickly here. So, <coughs> um, Turkey and Iran, they're great two countries to uh, kind of compare to each other and what happens because uh, they, they start out opposite and then they flip if that makes sense. If it doesn't make sense, it'll make sense here. So let's remember, Turkey was the Ottoman Empire before it becomes Turkey. Uh, it is a pretty, it's a Muslim empire. And so they're following Muslim laws and ideas. Um, and uh, they uniting most of the Middle East in what used to be the Western, or sorry, not the Western, but the Eastern Roman Empire. Remember, they had that. Now they've been weakened because of encroachment by Europeans, but uh, they are still a fairly large empire and uh, what happens is that will get that gets broken up by the Europeans and Turkey will become its own nation and that's the modern-day Turkey we have uh, on the region of Anatolia and uh, Ataturk uh, will come in and say we are going to be more secular we're gonna be more like Europe we want to look towards them and that's why they get the um, get part of the Marshall Plan and why the Truman Doctrine comes out because they want to be more Western and so they they looked at the issues of why the Ottoman Empire got carved up as well. We did industrialists and do that stuff. So they tried to try to do this, and so they create a modern secular society that's based on Western ideas. Um, they uh, will develop a Western style of alphabet so they can integrate better. It's easier for translations. Um, they'll translate the Quran into that, and uh, the call to prayer will be in Turkish instead of uh, in Arabic, and. They establish a republic that is um, fairly strong. Uh, the military is in there to st stop a dictatorship from happening. There's been several revolutions to uh, keep dictators from, from taking over and having too much power and bringing it back to a uh, more Islamist uh, point of view on things. Uh, but unfortunately, Turkey's in kind of a, a little bit of an issue today with their current president, Erdogan, who is uh, becoming a, a dictator, unfortunately. Um, and taking the country away from the ideas of Ataturk and going more away from secularism and looking at Europe to uh, more totalitarian and um, in some ways they're they're looking to possibly ally with the the Soviets or not the Soviets anymore but the Russians um, so um, also what comes with this then uh, when they become more secular is there aren't any more regulations on what women have to wear and 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 jobs so there's less restrictions on women uh, they don't have to wear a um, shawl or a hijab um, or hijab sorry hijab hijab um, and there's some pushback but the country keeps pushing forward with this idea of westernization until we're getting to more of today on the flip side of that, Iran in the 1970s has a Shah that is very pro-Western ideas. Uh, he is supported by Britain and the United States. Uh, we help support him because we have uh, a couple of our oil companies in there helping them produce their oil. And um, 
he's trying to make things more westernized, make it better for women. He's trying to make it better for everyone. Um, and there's corruption that happens here with that. Uh, he does some not so great things. He spies on his people, has a secret police that goes and beats people up that are opposing his ideas. And so he's eventually going to be kicked out. But before that, again, you had more equal rights for women. They could vote. They could, um, they had health care. Um, and, uh, the religious leaders had not a huge amount of power in what happened to the government. However, after this revolution, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini, who's one of the head uh, religious leaders in Iran, takes over, sets up a new government that's a republic. But then on top of that republic, we've got a theocratic system in that the supreme leader, uh, which becomes Ayatollah Khomeini and eventually his, um, uh, his successor, uh, Khomeini, just to get the last names nice and close um, and make it confusing. Uh, but uh, Khomeini comes first, and he um, is it gets to make the final say on what happens in the government. And he makes things based off of the Quran and Islamic teachings and Islamic law. So you go away from secularism, you go from away from the Western ideas of things, and you shift back or you shift towards a more Islamic view of the world. So women have to cover up. Uh, they don't have necessarily the full rights to get an education. They lose the right to vote. Uh, they don't have the same um, freedoms that the men do. Uh, we, we're seeing that luckily change for those women in Iran today. Uh, they are able to vote. Uh, there's more women in education than there are men. Uh, similar thing to a trend that we're seeing here in the U.S. But, um, yeah, it's, it's different. It's not Western. And so you see the rights moving away. And so you see this flip here in culture and what this new world is doing. Some people are going to embrace the ideas that they're seeing of uh, as, as the Western ideas get spread throughout the world. And other people are going to reject it. So Turkey is an example of um, a nation accepting it and uh, integrating it into their, um, their culture. Whereas Iran looks at it, rejects it and says we need to go back to an older way of doing things because that is the best way forward. And uh, that kind of thinking there of looking back is going to lead us to our more modern topics next week uh, when we look at uh, the global uh, stage and integrating everything into the uh, present. And that's going to lead us to the ideas of fundamentalism and, and uh, Islamic radi radicalism. That's going to lead us to the terrorist groups uh, like Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the Taliban and, well, yeah, and the Taliban and, and other extremist groups in Islam. But it's not just Islam. It also happens in other religions. We'll see it with um, with uh, Buddhists over in Southeast Asia and, and, and the like. So uh, that's kind of everything for decolonization. I apologize for this podcast being so long, uh, but it was a lot of stuff to go through. And uh, hopefully uh, you're able to take kind of everything away from this. So uh, next week, we'll be looking at uh, the new global stage and capitalism that's um, our, our look at that and how everything's being integrated into uh, one global unit instead of these different regions like we've seen uh, throughout history.